let me introduce the message this afternoon by saying this is normally uh, the hour that Brother Martin comes and opens the word. He, of course, is sick and has been for several days. I think he's making improvement, and we can thank the Lord for that. Continue to pray for him and his family and all that we know who need the Lord's uh, healing in their earthly body. And so, I want to bring a, a study that is kind of a unusual type of study, which I prepared rather hurriedly, drawing from uh, material here and there. We want to consider the so-called uh, Asbury Revival that is going on, I suppose, even as we speak. I want to take as a verse to uh, to begin with this from Psalm 85, and I'll not even read the whole psalm, but you're familiar with it, I'm sure. But we have this verse 6 that says, Wilt thou not revive us again, that thy people may rejoice in thee? This is a prayer of the psalmist to the Lord for revival. A plea with him, Wilt thou not revive us again, that thy people may rejoice in thee? And this ought to be our prayer, and this is our prayer so frequently here as we pray together and as we pray in our own places at home. I suppose everyone has heard something about this in the past several weeks, just two or three weeks, I think. I'm not even sure the exact date of the when things began, at least the religious news in the religious world has been a stir about this. And in the past week, at least three different people have asked me what I thought about it. And honestly, I have not followed the story very closely. Maybe some of you have followed it more closely than I have. <clears throat> so I'm saying that up front to say that I'm not in a position to speak in much detail or to give really a, a, a very insightful critique of it. What I want to do, rather, is to offer some general observations about revival. And then you can take that and make your own evaluation and assessment of what's going on at Asbury University in Wilmore, Kentucky. Part of the reason that I am interested in that event is, is because that's just about an hour's drive from where I was born and raised, and this is not the first time that that campus, and that in those days it was a college, now it's a university, and there is a, a seminary 
next door that's also called Asbury Seminary. <clears throat> Not the first time that they've had something like this. When I was about uh, seven years old, there was something similar. And I know people uh, who were there and who were influenced by it. I'm thinking of at least two people right now who claimed that uh, that was the turning point of their life in this uh, revival at Asbury College in about 1970. But we always want to deal with the genuine so that we can discern what may be counterfeit. So let's talk about real revival. You know, the term is used so loosely by those who may not even know what they're talking about or what the definition is. Revival is, by definition, a return to a vigorous state after a decline. And the word here in Psalm 85 that's used just a few times in the Old Testament means that the, the English word which comes from Latin means the same thing, to revive. Vive is life. To revive means a, a reinvigoration. Return to a vigorous state after a time of decline, like a sick person who recovers from sickness. <clears throat> Spiritual revival, biblical revival, is an acceleration of God's normal work in a concentrated time frame. It's not a different work than normal. It's God's normal work, but it's done in an unusual concentration of time. More happens in one week than normally happens in a year when there is true revival. It is then an extraordinary work of God as far as the time frame of things is concerned in which God gives a reinvigorating of true piety in a soul, in a church, perhaps in a city or a nation, in some more broad and general way. It is a fresh infusion of spiritual life and energy. Revival is a visitation from God <clears throat> that rekindles hearts that have grown cold. It is, it has been described as the sudden cloud burst that brings relief from drought upon the parched earth. It's a awakening from sleep. It's the brightness of noonday after the darkness of night. When you read of revivals in the Old Testament, 
and we have several examples of those, especially in the nation of Israel during the period of the kings, when in the kingdom of Judah in particular, there were about three uh, phases of revival under good kings, when there was a restoration spiritually of that worship of the Lord that had been uh, lost or that had deteriorated under bad kings. That's a biblical model of revival. And, of course, we have uh, on the day of Pentecost what we might think of as a revival, an extraordinary manifestation of the power of God upon many people simultaneously in a concentrated period of time. And, of course, then it was the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, a a, a very unique uh, situation in some ways there on the day of Pentecost. We have testimonies throughout church history of genuine revivals. We should also understand, as far as just defining revival, that it is an imperfect work. There are always excesses, oftentimes of the emotional sort. Jonathan Edwards had to deal with that in the first great awakening, and he he wrote about it and addressed it. Revival is an imperfect work in that there are always false professions mixed among the true. Revival meets with trouble both from enemies who say it's nothing but uh, enthusiasm. That's the the old term that old-timers would use uh, against it. And revival meets with trouble from more friendly quarters of those who go to excesses of emotion or even action. And so revival is temporary by definition. It is not a permanent state. It is the, the, the return to a healthier condition for a period of time. Now, it is vital that we discern true revival from false, the genuine from the counterfeit. And as we look at the history of revival, we, we see clearly examples of the genuine and of the counterfeit. Some have called counterfeit revival revivalism. And I think that's a valid distinction to make. Mr. Spurgeon used the term revivalism to distinguish that which is false from true revival. Let me read you this quotation from uh, 1882 that Mr. Spurgeon wrote. He 
And I'm tempted to take this quotation, it's a little paragraph here, and, and put it on some cards or something and just have them in my pocket ready to pass out to people <laughs> who ask me what I think about the, the revival. But I'm, I'm trying not to quite go that far here in the message. Just listen to Mr. Spurgeon. Sometimes we are inclined to think that a very great portion of modern revivalism has been more a curse than a blessing. Because it has led thousands to a kind of peace before they have known their misery. Restoring the prodigal to the father's house and never making him say, Father, I have sinned. There's no conviction of sin, no confession of sin, no repentance from sin. Spurgeon goes on, how can he be healed who is not sick? Or he be satisfied with the bread of life who's not hungry? The old-fashioned sense of sin is despised. And consequently, a religion is constructed before the foundations are dug out. Let me interrupt again. The illustration is, is perfect there. It's the foolish man who builds the house without any foundation under it. Then he goes on. Everything in this age is shallow. Now this is 1882. Can you imagine what Spurgeon would say today? Everything in this age is shallow. Deep sea fishing is almost an extinct business so far as men's souls are concerned. The consequence is that men leap into religion and then leap out again. Unhumbled, they came to the church. Unhumbled, they remained in it. And unhumbled, they go from it. End quote. That's what Spurgeon observed from the religious excitements of his day that were called revival that he says is only revivalism. And I don't think much has changed since 1882. Let me give you something from a a more modern uh, or a contemporary brother, Brother Bill Downing. He has this uh, contrast between revival and revivalism, and I've shared this with you before, but it's worth repeating here in the study that we're doing here today. (coughs) He says, Revival is the sovereign work of God. Revivalism is the work of man. And the, the difference between the two could not be greater. True revival is when God breaks in upon us. Or upon a people. Revivalism is what men work up and conjure up. Revival is sent down from God. Revivalism is worked up 
by men. In revival, the God-ordained means have always been prevailing intercessory prayer and fervent gospel preaching. But in revivalism, the man-centered means have been creating or to create religious excitement and you and the use of emotional stimuli and you know at the top of the list is music undoubtedly that whips people up into a frenzy <clears throat> and so on going on with brother downing's contrasts here in revival we have the preaching of the gospel and its related doctrines in revivalism There are special styles of preaching designed to create a given psychological atmosphere. Usually a lot of uh, tear-jerking stories, and you have, you know, Billy Sunday with his antics in the pulpit, acting like he's sliding into home base from, or home plate from third base, and all this kind of shenanigans, entertainment. Revivals may begin and continue without undue religious excitement. Undue religious excitement tends to corrupt true revival. Whereas revivalism cannot exist without a given degree of religious excitement and emotionalism. In revival, there's doctrinal preaching directed to the mind to reach the heart, conscience, and will. In revivalism, whatever preaching there is, is geared to the emotions, directed to the will, pressing for an immediate decision. And, of course, that's where Charles Finney and the whole revivalism movement that we know today uh, put its emphasis and made its aim. Decisionism. Whipping people up into an emotional excitement so that they will make a profession, make a decision, exactly what they're deciding they may not know, and most of the time it doesn't last very long. But we go on here. The aim of preaching in revival is to secure true lasting conversions. And conversion is seen as a spiritual work of the Lord. In revivalism, the aim of preaching is to produce decisions. In other words, you've got to see the difference between decisions and conversions. A conversion is a changed life. And a decision doesn't necessarily lead to a changed life. And decisions are seen as essentially psychological in nature rather than spiritual. Revival is characterized by a deep sense of sin and overpowering conviction. Revivalism is characterized by religious excitement, and in its modern form, entertainment, and a carnal 
atmosphere. <clears throat> and last in the, in the contrast here is that revival is characterized by a renewed apprehension of the glory, power, and majesty of God. Whereas revivalism is characterized by an emphasis upon the will and ability of man. And the focus between, the focus upon God in true revival and upon man in revivalism is so stark, it's unmistakable. Revivalism is a poor substitute for revival. Revivalism is a poor substitute for revival. Let me go on now and mention some characteristics of true revival. I'll mention seven things. First, and and some of this we, we just mentioned here, a heightened sense of the holiness of God and the sinfulness of man. A heightened sense of these realities. The fear of God as we are sinners before him comes home to the heart. And it comes home to the heart of many people at the same time. That's that's what revival is. It's this kind of thing on a broader scale. That which is ordinary. I mean, you say, well... Anyone who becomes a believer has the fear of God and has a sense of the holiness of God and their own sinfulness. Yes, but it's when it happens to numbers of people simultaneously or at about the same time. That sets it apart as a a season of revival. It's God's ordinary work compressed time-wise. And that's why it's the same message. It's the same gospel preaching that the Lord is pleased to use at some seasons more than at other seasons. It's the same message. The same means. Mr. Finney came along in the middle of the Second Great Awakening and introduced his whole new means and new measures to artificially produce what only the Spirit of God can really produce. And he introduced, at least for modern times, the idea that, that there has to be special this and special that in order to get a revival up. <clears throat> that, that's so foreign to the history of revival. A second characteristic of real revival is hunger for the word of God. People are not satisfied with superficial sound bites, but they have a hunger for the word, a healthy spiritual appetite for God's word. They want to hear it and hear it again and know it and walk in it. Thirdly, soul-searching preaching that exposes sin and exalts 
the imputed righteousness of Christ. What is that? Well, that's, that's evangelistic preaching. It's gospel preaching. The saints need it, and certainly the unconverted, the unbelievers need it also. And, and we ought to say something here that, technically speaking, revival is for believers. It, it's a restoration of life that has grown weak and uh, perhaps sickly. But there is sooner or later the, the influence upon unconverted ones as they see believers revived and as those believers become more earnest in their desire for the conversion of the lost, then the revival touches uh, the unconverted. Fourthly, there is a high appreciation of prayer and prayer meetings. We just mentioned preaching. There's preaching and prayer. The ordinary means that God uses, but they are, we might say, ramped up and given the blessing of God and, and a greater sense of urgency upon the preachers as well as the hearers and upon those who pray. A high appreciation of prayer and prayer meetings. Number five, an increase of graces. We might say this is something of a fruit of revival. And in a way, it's, it, it's, it's the essence of revival. An increase of holiness and humility, faith, love, Every grace, yes, an increase of evangelistic zeal to reach the lost. Sixthly, a characteristic of real revival is transformed lives. A lasting impact on those who have been revived and those who have been regenerated. In other words, it's not just an emotional high that you get for an hour in a service, but it stays with you in the way that you live, the way that you think, the priorities by which you live. There is a lasting impact. And even some cultural impact upon the unconverted as the influence of the gospel permeates even the, the unbelievers around us. And the level of common grace increases, in other words. If there is a Revival in which people's lives are not changed and transformed and in which there's not some, at least some temporary effect upon the society around us, then it's not true revival in the historic sense and in the biblical sense. And last of all, Number seven, an increase in local churches. Christ's institution of the assembly is honored 
held in high regard, strengthened, increased in number and in vitality. These are at least some essential characteristics and vital signs of real revival. Now, the question is, does or do the events in Asbury University have these vital marks and vital signs? Well, you can do your own research and... uh, Make your own evaluation of it. I haven't been there. It's been going on for a few weeks, as I said, and by now people have been traveling from all over the country, and I think even Canada, to um, come and sit in on these services that are services of a sort that are going on, I think, morning, noon, and night. Let me give you the uh, observations from a, a dear brother over on the Great Britain side of the world. <clears throat> and I just received this yesterday from him, Brother Jeff Thomas. And he, he writes this, There's been much on the web about the explosion of enthusiasm for worshiping God at Asbury Seminary. It's really the university, but the, they're using some of the seminary uh, buildings to meet in. For almost a month, there have been meetings in the 1,500-seat college chapel and many videos of the gatherings. The chapel has been full in the evenings but with hundreds also attending in the mornings and afternoons. From all over America, people have driven to this small town and sought to enter the chapel and observe what is happening. They long that this be the foretaste of a great awakening. There have been other movements like this one in this college in the past 30 years. I'm not aware of any in that recently, but... He says, this one is being recorded live on many phone cameras and fascinating scenes are sent into all the world. Nearly all who have attended have been impressed by the simplicity of the services and the numinous sense. I had to look up numinous. (laughs) Numinous means a mysterious spiritual uh, sense of the divine throughout the gatherings. Then he quotes the president of the seminary, uh, a man named Timothy Tennant. He says this, Despite the endless coverage in social media and the regular media, which is calling this a revival, I think it is wise to see this at the current phase as an awakening. So I'm not sure if he's really the president of the seminary or of the university but whatever the case, he's he's closely involved there. So this gentleman, the president, is hesitant to call it a revival. In fact, he's refusing to call it a revival, though everyone else is. He prefers to call it an awakening. He says this, 
Only if we see lasting transformation which shakes the comfortable foundations of the church and truly brings us all to a new and deeper place can we look back in hindsight and say, yes, this has been a revival. Well, there is at least some insight there on the part of of President Tennant. But then to finish up Jeff Thomas's article here, he says, when I think of the total antipathy, that is hatred, to confessional Christianity on every European campus, then to see pictures of hundreds of young people lost in wonder, love, and praise before the living God is very moving. I think of the student enthusiasm in Lanelli, which I'm probably not pronouncing that right. That's a city in Wales. In a week or two of evangelism in 1945. The war had just ended. What would the future be? What men would come from the student enthusiasm in Lanelli? The answer was John Thomas. Hugh Morgan, and the women they married, and he, I can't even pronounce their name, Elunid and Mary. There was also Ewan Davies, who had such an influence in Aberystwyth in Alfred Place Baptist Church, which is where Jeff pastored for over 50 years, and had influence over me, he says. Men and women like that formed the ethos of the evangelical movement of Wales for the next 70 years. Those young people came under the influence of Dr. Lloyd-Jones and they brought reformation and word-centered worship to Welsh churches. No doubt in the 1940s in Lanelli. There were some things in the activities of the students that were immature and embarrassing, but other aspects of it were from God. The famous 1904 revival in Wales began with a group of enthusiastic young people, and the same observations can be made about them. Theological immaturity, but also the encouragement of things that were of lasting riches to the churches of Wales. I wrote to a friend about what I was seeing and hearing and reading, and I told him that the gap between revival and revivalism is at times not a chasm, but a razor's edge. For my part, I am cautious, but like to stay quietly encouraged. End quote. So here's a man whose perspective I respect, and he's trying to be as positive as he can be. Of course, this is a developing story, and that's part of why it's kind of it may be premature to even say much about it here at this time. Um, 
as I was preparing these notes last night, I got online and started doing a little more digging and trying to get some up-to-date, fresh information. And what I saw, I had to go back and change some things in my notes because my uh, my own opinion of things is is kind of moving southward uh, as developments continue on and as even my knowledge of the developments uh, continues to grow. So let me just give you my conclusions thus far. I see cause for encouragement in this. This phenomenon began, reportedly, as a spontaneous desire on the part of about 30 students to remain after a chapel service and to pray. The service was concluded. Students were dismissed. Quite a few wanted to stay and pray. Well, that's an encouraging thing. That does sound like something like they talk about the prayer revival of of 1859 and so on. My question is, were these students longing for something more substantial than the undiscerning, flimsy, anti-biblical wokeness that their school as a whole, has at least to some degree embraced. Let's hope so. If it is rather just a continuation of the direction of that school, that is not cause for encouragement. But Let me then mention causes for concern. From what I understand thus far, there is virtually no theological foundation underneath this excitement. And of course, that's been the case with Christianity in general for the last uh, 150 years. Not much theological foundation. I again ask the question, does this movement, or uh, we'll call it a revival for the sake of, of time, does it have the marks mentioned Does it have a heightened sense of the holiness of God and the sinfulness of man? You know, I saw a clip where they said this was typical of of some of the sessions where, uh, you know, students and probably most of them not even on that campus, but people coming in now from, you know, all over the country, getting up and giving their testimonies and being applauded when when people are being applauded, and I'm sure they'd say, oh, we're applauding Jesus, but uh, they only applaud after some person you know, says something 
that provokes that response Do you suppose when Paul preached at Athens that they applauded him? Well, is there a heightened sense of the holiness of God and the fear of God? Is there a hunger for the word of God and soul-searching preaching? Thus far, there doesn't seem to have been any preaching in this from what I've been able to discern. It's mostly music. And uh, storytelling and, and personal storytelling. A high appreciation of prayer and prayer meetings. Well, that is the, the one encouraging aspect of it. I hope it's all that it appears to be. Is there an increase of graces and humility? Are there transformed lives and an increase in local churches? Well, from my limited knowledge, I can't answer all those questions. But from what I am able to discern thus far, I regret to say it appears to me to be much more along the lines of revivalism than revival. And I wish I could be more positive about it. But that's my impression thus far. There is a lack of gospel emphasis. Not just gospel preaching, but gospel emphasis. And more of an emphasis along the lines of what some have come to call moralistic, therapeutic, Deism, and and that's a subject in itself. The testimonies that are given from what I've been uh, exposed to amount to, you know, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. Listen, no revival ever came from that. And maybe it's even worse than that. God helps you to get over your victimization. Instead of repenting of sin, now we're victims. And we are helped out of our victimhood by God. That, beloved, is much more like this moralistic, therapeutic deism. One gentleman I was listening to who had been there for some of the sessions said there was not a mention of Jesus whatsoever. Hard to imagine. Does that sound like revival? Now some charismatic leaders are capitalizing on the excitement and coming to town and steering things in their showmanship direction. And so there's much emphasis upon subjective healings, healings of, of uh, the emotions and so on, rather than objective repentance, turning from sin. 
So the real issue, as I see it, is this. What will the lasting fruit be? Well, it's too early to say. Only time will tell. The Lord gave us that parable of the sower, and so we, we, we look at that parable in light of what's going on in Wilmore, Kentucky, and we say, is this the, uh, the thorny ground springing up a little bit and the stony ground springing up a little bit with the seed that's there? Or is it really good ground that will bring forth fruit unto life everlasting? too early to say but what it appears to be thus far is not encouraging and I ask you this what was the lasting fruit of the laughter revival what was the lasting fruit of the Lakeland Florida revival and some of these others that have come and gone in, in our lifetime that were called revival. The lasting fruit seems to be mostly the discrediting of religion in general, which is not worthy of the name revival at all. And so, you know, with, with Brother Jeff Thomas, we want to be patient and, and generous as much as we can. At the same time, we must be discerning. And I do not doubt that there are some sincere seekers mixed in with a lot of thrill seekers, if we can call them that. I guess you can tell in my own mind I'm somewhere between caution and uh, skepticism. I see more cause for concern than for encouragement. There appears to be more heat than light. Perhaps the Lord will overrule and bring some good out of it in some way, in some souls. For that we should pray. And let us truly pray for revival, pray for true revival. Pray not for revivalism, but for revival. By the way, there's a a book by Ian Murray called Revival and Revivalism that covers the period of the Second Great Awakening, and it, it is well worth your time to read. Lots of of not only historical insights, but theological insights there, as Ian Murray is always so uh, capable of bringing into the history that he writes. So let's pray for revival. It's desperately needed. Is, uh, is Asbury the answer to our prayers? Well, let's sing a hymn together. And make this our prayer, sure enough, 343.